Section 27 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. Section 27. White Men and Maoris. 1. Governor Fitzroy. When Governor Hobson died, his place was taken by his friend Lieutenant Shortland until a new governor could be sent out. The English people were at this time very anxious to see that the natives of new lands which they colonised should be fairly treated, and for that purpose they chose Captain Fitzroy to be the new governor. Up to this time he had been the captain of a ship, and had made himself famous in surveying and mapping little-known shores in his ship the Beagle, in which he had visited New Zealand on a trip round the world, and he was therefore called to give evidence as to its condition before the Committee of the House of Lords in 1838. He was well known to have shown much consideration to native tribes, and his strong wish to deal justly by them had often been shown. This was the main reason for his appointment. He landed in November 1843 and found the colony in a state of great depression, the public treasury being not only empty but in debt, for many officials had been appointed, judges, magistrates, policemen, customs receivers, and so on, and to pay the salaries of these, everyone had relied on the continued sale of land. But in 1841, there had come out the first land commissioner, William Spain, who began to inquire into the disputes about land which had arisen between white men and Maoris. Out of every ten acres the white men said they had bought, he allowed them to keep only one. This was but fair to the Maoris, who had been induced very often to make most foolish bargains. But the settlers ceased to buy land when they were not certain of keeping it. Hence the land sales stopped, the governor owed £20,000 more than he could pay, and so he was confronted with troubles from his very first arrival. 2. Wairau Massacre Just before he came, an incident had happened which deepened the trouble of the colony. At the north of the South Island, not far from Nelson, there was a fine valley watered by the stream Wairau, which Colonel Wakefield claimed alleging that it was part of the land he had bought with the Nelson district. Rapuraha and his son-in-law, Rangeheta, claimed it by right of conquest, and they had a couple of hundred stout warriors at their back, all well armed with muskets. Mr. Spain sent word that he was coming to settle the dispute, but, in spite of that, Captain Wakefield sent surveyors to measure out the land for occupation by the settlers. The surveyors were turned off by Raparaha, who carried their instruments and other property carefully off the land and then burned the huts they had put up. The Maoris did no violence and were courteous though determined. The surveyors returned to Nelson and Captain Wakefield induced the local magistrates to issue a warrant for the arrest of Raparaha and Rangaheta. To execute this warrant, 
Mr. Thompson, the police magistrate, himself went in a small vessel, and with him went Captain Wakefield, seven other gentlemen, and forty labourers, in all a party of forty-nine, of whom thirty-five were armed with guns. When they landed at the mouth of the Wairu River, Paraha, a Christian native, met them and begged them not to go on, as Rauparaha was ready to fight, but they paid no attention, and after marching eight miles up the pretty valley, they saw the Maoris, about one hundred in number, standing behind the stream, which though only waist-deep, had a rushing current of chilly water. Rauparaha said, Here I am, what do you want with me? Mr. Thompson said he must go to Nelson, and an irritating conversation ensued. Rangihaita drew up his tall form, his curly black hair setting off a face of eagle sharpness, and from his eye there gleamed an angry light. Behind him stood his wife, the daughter of Raparaha, and near them this latter chief himself, short and broad, but strong and wiry-looking, a man with a cunning face, yet much dignity of manner. When the handcuffs were produced by Mr. Thompson, Rauparaha warned him not to be so foolish. The magistrates gave the order to fix bayonets and advance. As the white men were crossing the stream, a shot was fired by one of them. It struck dead the wife of Rangihaita. Thereupon the Maoris fired a volley, and the white men hesitated on the brink of the water. A second volley, and a third, told upon them with deadly effect, and the labourers, who carried arms, but had neither martial spirit nor experience, turned and fled. Five of the gentlemen with four of the labourers stood their ground, and when the Maoris crossed, they surrendered. Raparaha called out to spare them, but Rangihaita, mad at the loss of a wife he loved, brained them with his tomahawk one after another, while the young men hunted the labourers through the trees and slew such as they overtook. Twenty-seven white men reached the shore and were carried quickly in the boats to the brig, five of them badly wounded. Twenty-two lay dead alongside of five natives whom the white men had slain. Raparaha feared the vengeance of the white man. He had few resources in the South Island, while the Nelson settlers could send five hundred armed men against him. He crossed in his own war canoes over a stormy strait in wild weather. Weary and wet with spray, he landed in the south of the North Island, roused his countrymen by his fervid oratory, to which he gave a fine effect by jingling before them the handcuffs with which he was to have been led a prisoner to Nelson. A day or two after the massacre, a Wesleyan clergyman went out from Nelson to Wairau and reverently buried those ghastly bodies with the cloven skulls. Not one had been mangled, far less had there been any cannibalism. 3. Effects of Wairau Massacre The Maoris were clearly less ferocious than they had been, and more than half of them had become fervid Christians after a fashion. But in some respects they were getting their eyes opened. The missionaries had told them that the white men were coming for their benefit, yet now they began to see that the white men were soon to be the lords of the soil, and that the natives must sink back into the position of servants. If a white man visited a Maori village, he was received as a man of distinction and entertained. 
if a Maori chief went to a white man's town, he was allowed to wander in the street, or if at all accosted, it was with the condescension of a superior race to a race of servants. The Maori blood was firing up. The story of Wairau made them change their mind about the white man's courage. The whalers had been hearts of daring. These newcomers had run and bawled for their lives. The natives were anxious also as to the result which would happen when all the lands near the shore should have been occupied by white men and they themselves hemmed up in the interior. A special interest was given to these feelings when, in 1844, Te Weru Weru gave a great feast, only two miles out of Auckland, partly as a welcome to Governor Fitzroy and partly as a demonstration in regard to the land question. He displayed a lavish bounty, 11,000 baskets of potatoes and 9,000 sharks, with great stores of other provisions, were distributed. But when the settlers saw a war dance of 1,600 men, all well armed with muskets and drilled with wonderful precision, they felt that their lives were at the mercy of the native tribes. Not one-fourth of that number of armed men, with any training for battle, could have been sent forth from the settlement for its own defence. This gave a significance to the Wairau massacre that created quite a panic. Fresh settlers ceased to come, many that were there already now left. Those who had taken up farms far out in the country abandoned them and withdrew to the towns. 4. Honi Heke and yet the great majority of the Maoris seem to have had no unfriendly purpose. When Governor Fitzroy went down to see Raparaha, he had no more than twelve white men with him when he entered an assemblage of five hundred Maoris. He said he had come to inquire about the sad quarrel at Wairau, and Raparaha told him his story, while others supported it by their evidence. Fitzroy stated that the Maoris had been very wrong to kill those who had surrendered, but as the white men had fired first, he would take no vengeance for their death. Indeed, at Wellington and Nelson, Fitzroy openly said that the magistrates were wholly misguided in trying to arrest the native chief, and at Nelson he rebuked all those who had been concerned in the affair. This gave great offence to the white men, they asked if the blood of their friends and relatives was thus to be shed and no sort of penalty to be exacted for the slaughter. Many of the magistrates resigned and a deep feeling of irritation was shown towards the governor, some of the settlers petitioning the English government to recall him. In the August of 1844, a young chief named Honi Heke, who dwelt at the Bay of Islands, on account of a private quarrel with a rough whaler, entered the town of Kororarika with a band of armed followers. He plundered a few shops and cut down a flagstaff on which the Union Jack floated from a steep hill behind the town. There were then not more than 90 soldiers in New Zealand, and when Heke threatened to burn Kororarika and do the same to Auckland, there was too good reason to fear that he might be as good as his word for he had two hundred well-armed men at his back, and a comrade of his, named Kawiti, had nearly as many. A chief named Wakanene 
with his men, kept Hecke in check, while Fitzroy sent to Sydney and received a 160 soldiers with two cannon. These landed at the Bay of Islands, but Waka Nene begged the governor not to hurry into hostilities. He arranged for a friendly meeting. Fitzroy met nine principal chiefs, who apologised, and made Heike send also a written apology. Fitzroy said he would redress some wrongs the natives said they had suffered, and having obtained from Heike ten muskets by way of fine, and having again set up the flagstaff, he returned to Auckland. But before the year was ended, Heike approached the town once more with a hundred armed men. He insulted it from the hills, cut down the flagstaff again, and then withdrew to the forests. Fitzroy published a proclamation offering £100 for his capture, and Heike replied by offering £100 for the head of Fitzroy. The governor now caused a new flagstaff to be set up, all sheathed with iron at the bottom, and with a strong wooden house attached to it, in which a score of soldiers were always to keep guard. A blockhouse or small wooden fortress was set up at a little distance down the hill towards Kororarika. Nevertheless, Heke said he would come and cut down the flagstaff again. Then the inhabitants of Kororarika began to drill in order to give him a warm reception if he came. Lieutenant Philpot, the commander of the Hazard ship of war, came ashore to drill them and to mount one or two cannon. Yet Heike, lurking among the hills, contrived by a sudden dash to capture Lieutenant Philpot. However, after dealing courteously with him, he released him. 5. Kororarika Burnt On the 11th of March, 1845, at daylight, Heke with 200 men crept up to the flagstaff, surprised the men in the house attached, and when twenty men came out of the lower blockhouse to help their friends on the top of the hill, he attacked them and drove them down into the town in the hollow beside the shore. Close to the beach was a little hill, and on the top of this hill stood a house with a garden surrounded by a high fence. Behind this, the soldiers and all the people of Kororarika took refuge. From the rocky high ground round about, the Maoris fired down upon them, while the white men fired back, and the guns of the hazard, which had come close into the shore, kept up a constant roar. For three hours this lasted, ten white men being killed, as well as a poor little child, while thirty-four of the natives were shot dead. The Maoris were preparing to retreat when, by some accident, the whole of the powder that the white men possessed was exploded. Then they had to save themselves. The women and children were carried out boat after boat to the three ships in the harbour. Then the men went off, and the Maoris, greatly surprised, crept cautiously down into the deserted town. They danced their war dance, sent off to their parents in the ships some white children who had been left behind, and then set fire to the town, destroying property to the value of £50,000. Heke's fame now spread among the Maoris. When the settlers from Kororarika were landed at Auckland, homeless, desperate and haggard, a panic set in, and some settlers sold their houses and lands for a trifle and departed. Others with more spirit enrolled themselves as volunteers, 
three hundred men were armed and drilled. Fortifications were thrown up round the town, and sentries posted on all the roads leading to it. At Wellington and Nelson also, men were drilled, and stockades were built for defence. 6. First Maori War But Hone Heike was afraid of the soldiers, and when Colonel Hume arrived from Sydney with several companies, he withdrew to a strong pa of his, 18 miles inland. Hume landed at the nearest point of the coast with a force of 400 men. These were joined by 400 friendly allies under Wakanene, whose wife led the tribe in a diabolic war dance, not a little startling to the British soldiers. The road that was to lead them to Hone Heike was only a track through a dense forest. Carts could not be taken, but each man carried biscuits for five days and thirty rounds of ammunition. Under four days of heavy rain, they trudged along in the dripping pathway, all their biscuits wet and much of their powder ruined. At last, on a little plain, between a lake and a wooded hill, they saw before them the pa of Hone Heike. Two great rows of tree trunks stuck upright formed a palisade round it. They were more than a foot thick and twelve feet high, and they were so close that only a gun could be thrust between them. Behind these there was a ditch in which stood 250 Maoris who could shoot through the palisades in security. The British slept that night without tents round fires of kauri gum, but next morning all was astir for the attack. A rocket was sent whizzing over the palisades. It fell and burst among the Maoris, frightening them greatly, but succeeding discharges were failures, and the Maoris gathered courage to such an extent that a number under Kawiti came out to fight. The soldiers lowered their bayonets and charged, driving them back into the power. During the night, while the white men were smoking round their fires, the sound of the plaintive evening hymn rising in the still air from the power suggested how strong was the hold that the new faith now had on the Maori mind. Next day, Colonel Hume, seeing that a place defended on all sides by such a strong palisade could not be captured without artillery, dug the graves of the fourteen soldiers killed and marched back, carrying with him thirty-nine wounded men. There was dismay in Auckland when this news arrived. What could be said when four hundred English soldiers retreated from two hundred and fifty savages? But, on the other hand, the Maoris had learned a lesson. They could not fight against English bayonets in the open, but while taking aim from behind palisades, they were safe. Therefore, they began in different places to strengthen their fortresses, and Hone Heike added new defences to his power of Ohiawai, which stood in the forest nineteen miles from the coast. 7. Ohiawai More soldiers were sent from Sydney, and with them, to take the chief command, Colonel Despard, who had seen much fighting against hill tribes in India. He landed 630 men and six cannons. But these latter, being ship's cannons on wooden carriages with small wheels, stuck in the boggy forest roads. The men had to pull the guns, and they were assisted by 250 friendly Maoris, 
On the evening of the 22nd of June, 1845, they spread out before the pa during the gathering dusk. It was a strong place. In the midst of a deep and gloomy forest, a square had been cleared about a third of a mile in length and in breadth. Great trunks of trees had been set up in the earth, and they stood fifteen feet high. Between their great stems, a foot or eighteen inches thick, there was just room enough left for firing a musket. Three rows of these giant palings, with a ditch five feet deep between the inner ones, made the fortress most dangerous to assault. And in the ground within, hollows had been dug, where men could sleep secure from shells and rockets. Two hundred and fifty warriors were there with plenty of muskets and powder. On the second morning, the British had got their guns planted within a hundred yards of the palisade, but the small balls they threw did little harm to such huge timber. The whole expedition would have had to retire had not a heavier gun come up. This threw shot thirty-two pounds in weight, and after twenty-six of these had struck the same place, a breach was seen of a yard or two in width. Colonel Despard ordered two hundred men with ropes and hatchets and ladders to be ready for an assault at daybreak. In the still dawn of a wintry morning, the bugles rang out and the brave fellows gathered for the deadly duty. They rushed at the breach and for ten minutes a wild scene ensued. The place was very narrow and it was blocked by resolute Maoris who shot down exactly half of the attacking party. Many of the soldiers forced their way through, but only to find a second and then a third palisade in front of them. Then they returned, losing men as they fled, and the whole British force fell back a little way into the forest. That night, the groans and cries of the wounded, lying just outside the par, were mingled with the wild shouts of the war dance within. Two days later, the Maoris hoisted a flag of truce and offered to let the white men carry off the dead and wounded. Thirty-four bodies lay at the fatal breach, and sixty-six men were found to have been wounded. A week later, another load of cannonballs for the heavy gun was brought up, and the palisades were further broken down. A second assault would have been made, but during the night the Maoris tied up their dogs and, quietly dropping over the palisades at the rear of the par, got far away into the forest before their retreat was known. For the howling of the dogs all night within the par kept the officers from suspecting that the Maoris were escaping. The British destroyed the palisades and carried off the stores of potatoes and other provisions which they found inside. 8. Governor Gray Fitzroy was preparing to chase Heke and Kawiti into their fastnesses when he was recalled. The English government thought he had not acted wisely in some ways, and they blamed him for disobeying their instructions. They had more faith in that young officer, George Gray, who, after exploring in Western Australia, was now the governor of South Australia. He arrived in November 1845 to take charge of New Zealand and at once went to Kororarika, where he found 700 soldiers waiting for orders. But he did not wish for fighting if it could be avoided. 
he sent out a proclamation that Maoris who wished peace were to send in their submission by a certain day. If they did, he would see that the Treaty of Waitangi was kept and that justice was done to them. Heke sent two letters, but neither of them were satisfactory, and as more than a year passed without any signs of his submitting, Colonel Despard was directed to go after him. Heke was at a power called Ikorangi, but Kawiti had five hundred Maoris at a nearer power called Rua Pekapika. 9. Rua Pekapika. Despard took his men sixteen miles in boats up a river, then nine miles through the forest, and on the 31st of December he had 1,173 soldiers with 450 friendly natives in a camp 800 yards from the Pa. It was like the other Pa's, but bigger and stronger, for behind the palisades there were earthen walls into which cannon balls would only plunge without doing any harm. Three heavy guns, however, were mounted, and when the Maoris sent up their flag, the first shot was so well aimed as to bring its flagstaff down amid the ringing cheers of the white men. All New Year's Day was spent in pouring in cannonballs by the hundred, but they did little harm. Next day the Maoris made a sally, but were driven back with the bayonet. Meantime, Heke came in one night with men to help his friend and heavy firing on both sides was kept up for a week, after which two small breaches appeared near one of the corners of the palisades. The next day was Sunday, which the Maoris thought would be observed as a day of rest, but the soldiers, creeping cautiously up, pushed their way through the breaches. A number of the Maoris ran to arms and fired a volley or two, but before the main body could do anything, several hundred soldiers were in the place. A stout fight took place, during which thirteen white men were killed. The Maoris, now no longer under cover, were no match for the soldiers, and they fled, leaving behind them all the provisions that were to have kept them for a whole season. This discouraged them, and Heke and Kawiti saw their men scatter out and join themselves to the quieter tribes for the sake of food. They therefore wrote to Grey asking peace and promising to give no further trouble. Gray agreed, but left 200 soldiers at Kororarika in order to keep the Maoris of the district in check. 10. Rauparaha During the 18 months while Heke's war was going on, troubles had been brewing at Wellington, where Rauparaha and Rangeheta kept up an agitation. The latter declared his enmity, he plundered and sometimes killed the settlers, and when soldiers were sent round to keep him in order, he surprised and killed some of them. But Rabaraha pretended to be friendly, though the governor well knew he was the ringleader in the mischief. Gray quietly sent a ship, which by night landed a 130 soldiers just in front of Rabaraha's house on the shore. They seized him sleeping in bed, and he was carried round to Auckland, where for some months he was kept a prisoner, though allowed to go about. Rangiheta fled into the wildly wooded mountain ranges of the interior. Once or twice he made a stand, but was driven from his rocky positions, with the slaughter of men on both sides. 
at last he and his followers scattered out as fugitives into lonely and savage regions into which they could not be followed thinking that good roads would do much to keep the country quiet gray offered half a crown a day to maoris who would work at making roads quite a crowd gathered to the task and for a while white men and maoris toiled happily together making good carriage roads into the heart of the country but at wanganui in may eighteen forty seven land disputes roused a tribe to bloodshed they killed a white woman and her four little children they attacked the town and when the inhabitants withdrew to a stockade they had made a fight took place which lasted for five hours after which the maoris burnt the town and retreated carrying off all the cattle two months later governor gray reached wanganui with five hundred men he chased the maoris up the valley and fought them gaining a decisive victory over them with the loss of two white men killed he gave them no rest till the chiefs applied for peace and early in the next year a meeting was held and the principal chiefs of the district promised to obey the queen's laws the war had lasted five years had cost a million pounds and the lives of eighty-five white men beside those of perhaps a hundred maoris the English government withdrew the larger part of the soldiers from New Zealand, but the colonists, to make themselves safe, enrolled a body they called the New Zealand Fencibles. They were all old soldiers who had retired from the British Army and who were offered little farms and a small payment. Five hundred came out from England on these terms and were placed in four settlements round Auckland for the protection of that town. They were really farmers. Who were paid to be ready to fight if need should arise with their wives and children they made a population of two thousand souls in this same year raparaha was allowed to go home he was surprised at the permission and grateful for it but he was an old man and died in the following year in 1850 hone heike died but rangaheta lingered on till 1856 giving no further trouble. Governor Gray dealt fairly with the Maoris. He paid them for their lands. He hung such white men as murdered them. He set up schools to educate their children and distributed ploughs and carts, harrows and horses, and even mills, so that they might grow and prepare for themselves better and more abundant food than they had ever known before. End of section 27